Before we go to this um, incredible text, let's pray together. Father, while many of us gather like this every Sunday morning, this doesn't feel like any Sunday morning. And we thank you for these moments throughout the year, these, these markers of world-transforming events. So we gather here to remember, God, that you did not stay far from us, but you came near to us. That you were not distant, but you became present. And that no matter where we go or where we are, that we are never alone, because you are God with us, Jesus. Holy Spirit, come and do for us what we need most. It's true for every person in this room, whether we... um, We haven't walked through the doors of a church building in a long time, whether this is the first time we have, whether this is something we've done every week for 52 years. What we all need most is to leave this time more impressed with what Christ has done, more confident in all he's accomplished, and more full of hope and and firm anticipation with what he promises to do when he comes again. So Spirit, would you come and lift him high and draw all of our hearts after him? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, if you're able to stand for the reading of God's word, would you stand with me? Luke chapter 1, verses 46 through 55. This is God's holy and wonderful word. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud and the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things. And the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. As he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Feel free to grab a seat. We'll, uh, we'll try to figure out what's happening with the mic. I'm sure it's my fault. Um, I recently grew a beard and I think it messes up the reverberation. <laughs> Probably gives my wife one more reason to tell me to shave it. Um, There's a question I want to ask as we dive into this text is what, what is it that Mary does and what is it that God does in this text? Or what is it that any of us who believe do in this text and what is it that, that God does in this text for, as we look at what this contrast between Mary and what God does Mary magnifies the Lord, her spirit rejoices in God, but look what God does, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. Verse 49, for he who is mighty has done great things. And then we go on in verse 50 and following, and this now goes from Mary, and it goes to any who would believe. His mercy is for those who fear him. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud. Verse 51, verse 52, he has brought down the mighty from their thrones. Verse 53, he has filled the hungry with good things. 
Verse 54, he has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. I mean, there's, there's not an equal balance here. There's this asymmetrical dance that's happening between some of the things that we do in response, but all these things that God does out of his kindness. He's the main actor in this song. He's the subject of almost every single verb. Now, if we step back and we look at some of the other prophecies, praises, poems that likely were sung in Luke 1 and 2, we see the same thing. You go over to verse 68 in chapter 1, this prophecy that was likely sung by Zechariah, one, one of God's priests. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. He visited. He redeemed. And has raised up a horn of salvation as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies, to show mercy that he promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham. He's the one that made the promise. He's the one that had the oath. He's the one that keep, he's the main actor. He's the subject of the verbs. We go over to chapter two and we see this song from someone named Simeon who had been waiting for Jesus to show up. Verse 29, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared. God has done it all. It's all about him. Mary knows this, and it's captured in this word, magnify. My soul magnifies the Lord. To magnify means to, to make much of, to Exalted to show the greatness of, to bring that which might be out of focus into better focus. The tense that she uses is present. So more literally, she's magnifying. It's something she's doing. She's not going to stop doing. It's this ongoing activity that will just keep going and going and going. It never stops because you never get to the outer limits of God's greatness. So she magnifies, she exalts, and she praises. A few years ago, I was, um, I was trail running down in the, the Chuckanut uh, Mountains, the Chuckanut area of our town, which is just south of Fairhaven, kind of west of I-5, all the way over to the, to the bay. And I was doing a trail called Pine and Cedar. And, and so I get up to the top of Pine and Cedar, and I go over towards these lakes, which I'd run this area so many times, I've been in this area so many times, and I saw a, a new trail kind of a half trail, but, but you could run it. And so, so I decided to take a little detour, and I went off on this trail. And there was a couple of things ab- about this that excited me. One is that I've been up there so many times, I thought I'd been on all the trails. And so to get onto a new part of an area that I loved was, was a real gift to me. The other part, though, is I figured I'd been up there so many times that I wasn't going to get lost. I was wrong. <laughs> As much as I'd been in that area and as, as many places as I had explored, I really had no concept of how vast the area actually is. The area from Fairhaven down to, to the end of Chuckanut, which then goes up into Blanchard Mountain as you get down into Bow, as you spill down into Skagit County and all the way to I-5 and to, to the water. I just had no sense. As much as I'd spent time, hundreds and hundreds of hours and thousands of miles of running up there, and I just had no clue. It's, it, it, it went beyond what I could conceive of. Magnifying God, it doesn't add to the sheer greatness of who he is. It does, however, help us explore his greatness. 
We roll around who he is and say, oh, look what he's done. Look who he is. Look at all that he has accomplished. Now, there's something beyond the word magnify that helps capture this, the word order of the sentence. Or what's known for for grammar people, people that loved English, of which I'm sure there was like three of you. Um, (laughs) That's a rousing reply. There's this thing called sentence syntax. It's the the word order, the order and the way we put things together. In in Greek, what this was originally written in doesn't have the same sort of structure as as English, the subject and predicate and all those things we had to learn in 10th grade English, and we probably didn't really learn very well. But but, but, but in in Greek, the way you position words in a sentence is how you demonstrate emphasis. And so you would often put a, a word first in order to say, this really matters. And in this text, in our English translation, it says, my soul magnifies the Lord. In in the original language, it's actually magnifies my soul, the Lord. Or exalt my soul, the Lord. Almost commanding her, her soul and her spirit, everything she is, to see God as God is. Her overwhelmed heart bursts forth to make much of God, to exalt and to glorify why? We hear it in this little four, for look what God has done. Look what he's done. He's looked on her humble estate. For he has done great things. Mary came from a, a, a no-name town. We know from other details of the text, she, she was impoverished. She had no worldly reputation. There was no reason that God should take notice. And she's saying, God looked at me and nobody. And look what he did. I did nothing to deserve this. And yet God has done great things for me. Now, if you look up to verses 28 and 30, we see some of why that the, the, an angel named Gabriel has come to Mary and he says, Mary, you have found favor with God. You who are greatly favored. We might be tempted to say there was something in, in Mary that she had done to, to move God's action towards her. That, oh, she was, she was favorable. She acted in a wonderful way. And the text would tell us in the descriptions we have of Mary, she was faithful and she knew God. But that's not why God looked at her. The word favor literally means grace. Mary, you have received grace. You who have been so graced. Greetings to you whom grace is bestowed. It's the same for any who are here that know Christ, his Savior and his King. Because God has bestowed grace. In Victor Hugo's novel, uh, Les Miserables, we see a glimpse of what this bestowing grace looks like. There's this tender scene of rescue where Jean Valjean, one of the the main characters in this, this book, he has recently been released from prison. He was in prison for years and years and years because his family was starving and so he stole a loaf of bread He was sent off to to prison, to to hard, forced labor for years and years. And during that time, he he himself became very hardened. And he gets released from prison. He has no prospects. He can't find work. No one will hire him. He's in the middle. A a giant storm comes in. He's caught in the storm, and he sees a a parsonage. He sees a a place where a a pastor lives, and he he goes to it. And and the pastor, Monsignor Bienvenu, welcomes him him in. He he brings him in. He gives him shelter. He gives him a place to stay, to get out of the, 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 the elements. He gives him food to eat. And the way Valjean repays him is he steals 
his, uh, his silver. He, he finds the silver. He finds the silver forks and the knives, and he puts them in a bag, and he flees in the middle of darkness to try to get away. He can try to restart his life with these things that he has stolen. Well, in the process of, of fleeing, he's found. He's discovered by uh, a detective who, who grabs him, and they drag him back to Bienvenu's house, and they say, we found this man who is stolen from you, and if he is tried for doing this, he faces death. That, that will be the consequence of him taking the silver. And so he stands there and brings him back to Bienvenu, and Bienvenu says, oh, no, 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 you don't understand. I gave him those things. He didn't steal them from me. I, I've given it freely. And he says, but wait a second, you forgot one thing, Valjean. You forgot the, 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 the silver candlestick. You're supposed to take that as well, which if you know the story, it's the last thing of value that Bienvenu has. He gives it away. He ransoms a condemned man, a guilty man. He bestows grace. I love the little connection um, of Bienvenu's name. It means to welcome. He welcomes a hard-hearted person he welcomes someone who is facing condemnation. He bestows grace. Now look again at verse 47 and 46. Our souls magnify the Lord and we rejoice in God our Savior who looks on our humble estate. He takes notice. He does great things. And it's to the extent that we see our salvation in this light that we magnify God. We come in desperation and we come in need. Our humble estate might be different than Mary's, but the Bible is clear. Our humble estate is always one of spiritual poverty and need before a holy God. And he looks upon us in favor with grace and bestows mercy. And he offers so much more than a silver fork and spoon and a candlestick. He offers his son. That's what we're gathered here to celebrate and remember. That God gave his best. that we might be saved. Tonight, as we gather again, we'll remember where Christ was placed in a manger. It's this foreshadowing of one day he would go to a cross. That Christ came to give his very best to bestow grace. My friend, um, Ben Clifford has introduced me to some of my now favorite musicians over the years. He's my go-to guy, Ben, who should I listen to now? And he'll always recommend someone I've never heard of and ends up being amazing. Probably top of the list of the people he's ever recommended is a guy named John Bellion. Um, if you go listen to him, just know not all the lyrics are, are G-rated. So just telling you, the themes are incredible um, for sure. His insights are amazing. Um, and he's just really clever. One of the albums that I just think I find just incredibly fascinating is an album called The Human Condition. And I love listening to it all the way through. And it really does. It's almost like a musical version of Ecclesiastes. And so you're going through this. Um, and there's something that happens um, in the last song that I hadn't noticed. I'd listened to it over and over and over again for a couple years until my oldest daughter, Emma, pointed it out. In the last track, it's called Outro. And she says, Dad, do you know what John Bellion's doing on that track? He's doing a reprisal. I said, what do you mean? He says, a reprisal. He's taking all the themes and the melodies of all the previous songs and he's putting it into this one. That's what Mary's doing in this song. Mary's song, this song of praise, what's known as the Magnificat, this, which is just the Latin word for magnify. She's taking these big themes and these big promises of the Old Testament, the first two thirds of the Bible and weaving them together in this one song. She quotes or alludes to 
verses from Genesis, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, 1st and 2nd Samuel, Job, Psalms, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Micah, Habakkuk, and Zephaniah. 12 books out of 39, at least, in just a few verses. It's actually really, really stunning. And it's this reprisal of the greatest themes and promises of God throughout the Old Testament, which will ultimately be carried out in Jesus. As she's now carrying Christ, she can begin to sing this song because Jesus is coming. He's bringing all of those promises to bear. Verses 50 and falling, his mercy is for those who fear him from generation, for he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud and he has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things. And he, she's doing this play on, on, on all these promises that God has given. And what I want you to notice is they're all past tense. Everything she's saying is past tense, but she's actually not singing about things that God has done. No doubt that's in the rearview mirror, but she's actually looking towards the future. And what she's using is what's called a prophetic past tense. This is how prophets speak. They speak about the things that God will do with such confidence she says they've already happened. And she's saying she can do it because Christ has come. A few weeks ago, I mentioned um, what I think is a really wonderful insight from Alistair Begg, that the entire Old Testament, the first 39 books of the Bible are one long advent calendar to Christ. It's all this big countdown towards Jesus, all the way from Genesis to Malachi, every page, every promise, every symbol, every sacrifice, every ceremony, every half-decent leader, everything ultimately points to Christ. Jesus himself said this, John 5, 39 You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and it's they that bear witness about me. Luke 24, 27, in beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. He says, it's all about me. It's all about Christ. That's why Mary is breaking forth and magnifying God is that everything is now here. Everything has begun because Jesus has been born. Mary's song is a reprisal of the Old Testament that can now be sung because Jesus is here. And what I want to do is read for you uh, a statement from, or a series of insights from Tim Keller, who got it from a guy named Edmund Clowney, who got it from John Calvin, who got it from Jesus. Okay, so that's the the way it it tracks through. And what I want you to hear is I'm just going to walk through the Old Testament, and I want you to hear the signs and symbols. And some of you will know the stories, and you'll be like, wow. Okay. You connect the dots. Some of you won't, and that's okay. Hopefully, it will motivate and give you, actually motivate to go dive in and help give you a lens as you dive into your Bibles. This is why Mary sings this song. Jesus is the true and better Adam who passed the test in the garden and whose obedience is imputed, given to us. Jesus is the true and better Abel who, though innocently slain, has blood that now cries out, not for our condemnation, but for acquittal. Jesus is the true and better Abraham who answered the call of God to leave all the comfortable and familiar and go into the void, not knowing whither he went to create a new people for God. Now we're only at Genesis chapter 12. Jesus is the true and better Isaac, who was not just offered up by his father on the mount, but was truly sacrificed for us. And when God said to Abraham, now I know that you love me because you did not withhold your son, your only son whom you love from me. Now we can look at God taking his son up the mountain and sacrificing him and saying, now we know that you love us because you did not withhold your son, your only son, whom you love from us. Genesis 22. Jesus is the true and better Jacob who wrestled and took the blow of justice we deserve, so we, like Jacob, only receive the wounds of grace to wake us up and discipline us. Jesus is the true and better Joseph who at the right hand of the king forgives those who betrayed and sold him 
and uses his new power to save him. We finish Genesis. Now Exodus. Jesus is a true and better, and I'm not going to go through all 39 books. It won't be that long. (laughs) Although you can, because it's all about Jesus. All of God's promises find their yes in him. Jesus is the true and better Moses who stands in the gap between the people and the Lord who mediates a new covenant. Jesus is the true and better rock of Moses who struck with the rod of God's justice now gives us water in the desert. Jesus is the true and better Job, the truly innocent sufferer who then intercedes for and saves his stupid friends. Jesus is the true and better David whose victory becomes his people's victory though they never lifted a stone to accomplish it themselves. Jesus is the true and better Esther who didn't just risk leaving an earthly palace but lost the ultimate and heavenly one who didn't just risk his life but gave his life to save his people. Jesus is the true and better Jonah who was cast out into the storm so that we could be brought in. Jesus is the real rock of Moses, the real Passover lamb, innocent, perfect, helpless, slain so the angel of death will pass over us. He's the true temple, the true prophet, the true priest, the true king, the true sacrifice, the true lamb, the true light, the true bread. Mary's song of praise is magnifying God because the true and better is now here. I think I've integrated um, this series of books into every Advent uh, sermon so far, so I feel like I have to do it today. The Chronicles of Narnia, just an incredible series written by C.S. Lewis, this mythic retelling of the Christian Story And there's this wonderful scene in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the first written book, but really second in the series. Um, It's a conversation between Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. So there's talking animals in this magical land called Narnia and this little girl named Lucy. And she's about to meet this, this figure named Aslan, who is a lion. But in these stories, this is Lewis's representation of Christ. And so she's having this conversation with Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. And she's like, I, you know, I very much would like... to to meet him, but I should be quite nervous about meeting a lion. Is she safe? Is he safe? So she's asking this question, preparing to meet, like, is he he safe? And I love Mr. Beaver's reply. Safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Mary actually is saying something similar in in her song of praise as well. Notice at least three things that Mary says about God in verse 49 and following. That he is mighty, that he is holy, and thank God he's merciful. He's not safe. He's God Almighty. But he is good. He's merciful. That word mercy is the Old Testament word uh, hesed, the the Hebrew word that means steadfast love, unbreakable love, uh, royal commitment to his people. He is mighty, infinitely so. He is holy. He is completely other, and yet he is merciful. Something we might ask as to whom this mercy is shown, and verse 50 tells us, and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. That might feel like a weird point to bring in on a Christmas Eve service, but it's important that we don't leave this generic, but we make it very personally applied. Who is his mercy towards? And the text tells us those who fear him. Again, think of what Mr. Beaver said, safe. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. 
Place yourself into Lucy's shoes, about ready to stand before Aslan, who is mighty and holy, but merciful. The right reaction, the right response is one of reverence and and awe and fear. Not the type that drives you away to hide, but the kind that draws you in in wonder and reverence. And what this gives to us is actually one of the most counterintuitive things in the Bible. The more you fear the Lord in this way, the more you see him mighty and holy and merciful, the less you fear anything else. And that's actually Mary's logic in her her song. Notice the sweep and scope of what she's saying. She's saying all of the bullies will be undone. All those proud and lifted up that wreck everything, they will be laid low. And those that bow before God will be lifted up and exalted with him. Scope and sequence. She's saying that what Christ is coming to do is to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. That's what Gabriel promised up in verses 23 or 32 and 33. This is what Christ will do. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. Mary's song, the Magnificat, this magnify brings together these two big things. The long-awaited Messiah King is now here. The Advent calendar, we finally got to Christ. He will overthrow every power, rule, and pride that stands against him and bring everyone with him who bows their knees. Mary magnifies God in Jesus. This has now begun. And we now live in this moment waiting for Christ to bring it to completion at his second advent when he returns. Jesus is everything we need because Jesus is everything. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would show off Christ in this place, in our songs, our words, um, our prayers, our conversations, and I pray in our hearts as the true and better everything. That you would break through any numbness, that you would revive um, those that, 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 that are sleepy before Christ, God, that you would take stone and make it flesh, that you would um, encourage and reaffirm in, in all of our hearts and minds who Christ is and all that he has done. May we remember the verbs of this passage, that you're the main actor. Our response is one simply of belief. So we ask for that grace, whether for the first time or for the millionth time. Help us to see Christ the way Mary saw Christ. He might be magnified and greatly praised. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.